Less than a year after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, abortion is banned in roughly a quarter of the country. While some states are trying to join that pack, others with bans already on the books are beginning to have second thoughts. It just was not right for a physician to be saving the life of a woman to be at risk of going to prison. Lawmakers in some red states, at the urging of doctors, nurses, and hospitals, may now add exceptions to their bans. But they're getting blowback from anti-abortion groups branding them as traitors to the cause. Today, Politico healthcare reporter Alice Miranda Olstein introduces us to a Republican lawmaker wrestling with the state ban he helped pass, and we consider how well exceptions work or don't in practice. From the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gornstein. This is Tradeoffs. Tennessee State Senator Richard Briggs woke up early last May to shocking news coming over his radio alarm clock. The U.S. Supreme Court appears poised to strike down Roe versus Wade, the president that has guaranteed a constitutional right to abortion for 50 years. Far from celebrating, the lifelong Republican, military veteran, and devout anti-abortion Methodist went cold. I became concerned immediately. Richard's mind went to the so-called trigger law he voted for just four years earlier. Which basically outlawed all abortions for any reason. With Roe now on the way out, that total abortion ban would soon take effect in Tennessee. Richard says that when he backed that ban, with no exceptions, he saw it as more of a statement of his anti-abortion values. He now admits that he didn't fully understand the details of the bill, which he never believed would become law. Sometimes being honest gets you into trouble in politics, but uh, I didn't think that Roe versus Wade would be overturned. Richard worked as a heart surgeon for decades in the military and at a Catholic hospital in Knoxville before getting elected in 2014. A buttoned-up conservative from a staunchly Republican district, he doesn't drink, doesn't own a TV, and doesn't believe in a broad right to abortion. I make no bones about this. I'm a right-to-life physician. I don't support abortion on demand because someone doesn't want to be pregnant. I'm not in favor of that. Still in his pajamas that morning, radio on, Richard began to panic. A provision in Tennessee's ban that he helped pass made all abortions a felony, punishable by up to 15 years in prison. To clear their names, doctors would have to convince a court after the fact that the procedure was medically necessary. Usually in the American justice system, someone who is accused is considered innocent until proven guilty. Here, this was flipped to where the physician was guilty, even if he were saving a woman's life, a mother's life. Richard worried that doctors in his state would be prosecuted for providing life-saving care, Worse, he feared doctors would withhold that care to avoid prosecution, with disastrous results. If we allow those women to die, it's not just a tragedy for that woman. It's a tragedy for her whole family. Her children will be raised without a mother. And if this is preventable, then why is the state forcing this to happen? Over the next few months, Richard's fears only mounted— His legislative assistant told him that years ago, she needed emergency surgery for an ectopic pregnancy, where the fertilized egg takes root outside of the uterus. Without an abortion, she could have died. 
Doctors, nurses, and hospitals warned Richard that now, with the state ban in full force, more people would be at risk. Many of our members have been afraid to deliver routine care to women who are experiencing pregnancy complications. Yarnell Beatty is the senior vice president and general counsel for the Tennessee Medical Association. Because of the possible legal jeopardy, physicians were afraid to address those patients, and so they sent them out of state. Doing so delays care, but it's also risky because in transit there could be hemorrhaging and other problems that could cause even more major medical consequences. Yarnell told Richard the solution would be to amend Tennessee's ban so that doctors can provide abortions to someone in a medical crisis without fear of prison. Most of the dozen-plus states with abortion bans include an exception that protects the pregnant person's life, although when exactly it can be used is often unclear. Fewer states also have exceptions for cases of rape, incest, or fatal birth defects. Abortion rights advocates argue these exceptions are just window dressing that make bans more politically palatable, but ultimately fail to help. Yet the more Richard heard about patients being turned away in medical emergencies, the more he worried that leaving the law as is would violate his Hippocratic oath to do no harm. What the state was doing was attempting to interfere in the practice of good medicine. And I think that's where I said someone has to speak out on this. Richard drafted a bill that would make several changes to the ban. One, it gives more precise definitions. What a medical emergency is, what a non-viable pregnancy is, what a fatal fetal anomaly is. Two, the bill legalizes abortions in cases where the pregnant person's health or life is in danger. It lists out specific medical conditions that would qualify, like ectopic pregnancy or cancer, but it also leaves room for doctors to use their best judgment. And three, it would allow abortions in cases of fetal anomalies that are fatal. If a woman has a child that cannot survive out the womb, why should the legislature expose her to those risks? This January, Richard rolled out his bill, as did Republicans in Idaho, Kentucky, Missouri, South Carolina, Utah, and Wisconsin. Lawmakers in all seven states have introduced bills to add exceptions, clarify exceptions, or expand existing ones. All across the country, we're seeing self-described pro-life Republicans pushing to make their state abortion bans less restrictive. And there's been a backlash. I'm ashamed for Senator Briggs and anybody else that admits that they voted for something, A, not reading it in the first place, and B, not ever thinking that it would go into effect. Will Brewer is the lead lobbyist for Tennessee Right to Life, the state's leading anti-abortion group. The organization recently stripped Briggs of its endorsement and announced to its members that he can no longer be trusted because he is working to tear down the state's abortion ban. Will helped draft that ban back in 2019, and he says it's having exactly the effect he intended, preventing hundreds of abortions from happening every month. That's what I set out to do, and I feel like I've done it, and I'm proud that we as a state have done that and are saving lives. Anti-abortion activists like Will say they would support certain narrow changes, like specifying that terminating an ectopic pregnancy is legal. But they oppose Richard's bill, arguing that without the threat of felony charges, doctors will provide far more abortions than Will thinks are necessary. This, to me, is a life-and-death situation. 
Richard fully expected to be attacked for sticking his neck out. But he said it stings that it's coming from a group that gave him a 100% rating on its legislative scorecard. I think they've done a lot of good things in Tennessee. But even good organizations get things wrong, in my opinion. You know, it's sort of like the biblical, forgive them for they know not what they do. Forgive them for they know not what they say. Richard insists that if anti-abortion groups better understood his bill and the dangers of leaving the state law as is, they'd come around. But given the blowback he's faced, he knows his colleagues may be nervous to join him. There may be glory against the guy that jumps up first and charges to fight against something. He's likely to get shot to be the first one, too, and that's a little bit about what happened. Right now, in courtrooms, state capitals, in street demonstrations, and in the press, anti-abortion lawmakers are clashing with physicians over abortion restrictions. With a foot in each of those worlds, Richard is testing if it's possible to do what he feels is right by both his party and his professional calling. As a lawmaker, he is confident he is representing the majority of Tennessee voters, citing polls showing overwhelming support for adding exceptions. As a physician, he's driven by memories of the pregnancy-related emergencies he's witnessed. Richard says it haunts him to think about doctors having the ability to save a patient, but being too afraid to do it. He knows this crusade could cost him his job, but he hopes, along the way, to force people to rethink what policies they consider pro-life. I just don't see how any common-sense person could not support this. I mean, how could you not support mothers? How could you not support families? Why are you risking the life of a mother to force her to deliver a child where she may die? Alice Miranda Olstein reporting. After the break, we talk with Alice about how well abortion ban exemptions are working where they already exist. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back. We're talking with Alice Miranda Olstein, a healthcare reporter with Politico, about why some anti-abortion state lawmakers are trying to add exceptions to their state's new abortion bans. Hey, Alice. Hi, Dan. You've reported that these conservative lawmakers are worried that the broad abortion bans that they previously supported could be dangerous, even deadly. So they're pushing for more exceptions as the solution. And Alice, I know that you've been looking at the handful of states that already have exemptions on the books to get a sense if they work. So let's start with the basics. Do we know how many people in those states have used those exemptions since the bans took effect last summer? Well, it's hard to say for sure, Dan. We're only about eight months into this new era, and that kind of data can take years to collect and analyze, especially at the national level. But there is some state data, and it shows that exceptions are difficult to use in practice. 
The best available data so far comes from the Society of Family Planning. That's a research organization that supports abortion rights. They collected month-by-month abortion data from all 50 states, and they compared the number of abortions that took place in April of last year, before the Supreme Court's ruling, to August, after many state bans took effect. So, what I did is I looked at the places that banned all abortion, but made exceptions to save the life of the mother. Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Dakota, Texas, and Wisconsin. And each of those states went from recording a few hundred abortions per month before the ruling to zero after. Zero abortions? Like, absolutely none? That's right. Of course, we know people are still traveling out of state and ordering abortion pills online, but that data suggests that people are not able to navigate the state's exceptions. So the little data we have suggests people are forced to seek alternatives to the exceptions even when they're on the books. And Alice, why do experts think that is? Well, there's a fair amount of data from before Roe fell that experts are looking to to try to understand what's going on now with exceptions. And bottom line, it shows that they're really hard to use. So let's start with the exceptions for survivors of rape and incest. Just six states have those. And in most of them, like what Richard Briggs is proposing in Tennessee, people are required to file a police report. Now, data from the Federal Bureau of Justice Statistics shows that nearly two-thirds of sexual assaults are never reported. And there are lots of reasons someone might not report their rape, right? The attacker could be a friend or family member. The victim may fear retaliation or might just not want to relive the experience. Exactly, Dan. What about exemptions for fetal anomalies, medical emergencies, or to save the life of the pregnant person, which a lot more states have. So to understand that, I talked to Katrina Kimport. I'm a professor with the ANSWER program at the University of California, San Francisco. Last year, Katrina published a study she conducted of women from 14 states who all had abortions after 24 weeks of pregnancy. And look, even before Roe fell, a lot of states, even some blue states, banned abortions later in pregnancy, but they had these exceptions. And on paper, many of the women Katrina interviewed qualified for those exceptions, but she found that those who did still had to travel the states without bans to get the procedure done. The number of honestly heartbreaking ways that a pregnancy can go wrong are mind-blowing. And any list of exceptions is always going to fail to capture all of those ways. Katrina interviewed women whose fetuses had a serious issue that didn't fit any known condition. Even though every physician that this patient interacted with was clear that this pregnancy was non-viable. But because it wasn't in any medical textbooks, it wasn't in the list of exceptions by the law. Others told Katrina that they couldn't qualify for an abortion because their baby would be born alive even if it would then die. And that death might happen in minutes. It might happen in hours. It might happen in weeks. And so they didn't qualify for these exceptions because what was wrong with their fetus was not lethal in utero, that they would have a live birth, that they would be able to see their baby, and then they would have to watch their baby suffer and know that their baby was going to die. Abortions that late in pregnancy are really rare. So Katrina's study only covered a small number of women, Dan, less than 30. 
but it's one of the few pieces of data that we have. And it sheds light on some of the challenges people could face as more states consider creating exceptions. As you say, we've got limited data to go off here. But Alice, what we have suggests there can be a lot of barriers to people actually using these exemptions. Of course, some people do use them. And I know you spoke with a woman who went through this herself to understand the process. What, what did she have to say? That's right. So I talked to Ohio resident Katie May, who found out just a few days after the Supreme Court overturned Roe that her baby had no heartbeat and was unlikely to survive. The fear was, it was awful. Ohio's trigger ban went into effect right after Roe fell, banning abortions with exceptions for fetuses without a heartbeat, for ectopic pregnancies, and to protect the life and health of the mother. Katie qualified for an exception, but her medical team insisted she wait 10 more days, just to be sure. My mental health was just completely deteriorating at that point. Kind of felt like to me, like an embryo that was never going to survive felt more important than the rest to my life. Ten days later, same situation, still no heartbeat. 48 hours after that, Katie had the abortion. It was a whole nother wave of fear at that point because it's off, like awful having to go see your dead baby on an ultrasound. It, it's traumatizing. It was like nothing other. So having gone through that, Alice, what's Katie's take on abortion exemptions? So to an outside observer, Dan, it could look like the system worked in this case. Katie qualified for an exception to her state's ban, and eventually she received the abortion her doctors recommended. But Katie told me that that delay was so excruciating that she wishes she just went to Pennsylvania instead for the procedure. That 12 days is like, you feel like a walking tomb. You're just like walking around like, I'm a coffin right now, and you just feel like so dirty. You're like, I think I showered like three times a day. It was really, really awful. Katie told me that she appreciates that conservative lawmakers like Richard Briggs want to protect people's lives by adding in these exceptions. But for her, the better solution would be just allow abortions. In fact, courts have blocked Ohio's ban for the time being, and that's the only reason Katie feels safe trying again to get pregnant. It seems unlikely that any of these conservative lawmakers are going to endorse scrapping the abortion bans altogether, Alice. But I'm curious, what does Senator Briggs in Tennessee think about the fact that, as best as we can tell, exceptions are pretty hard to use in practice? When I asked him that, he admitted that the legislation may not work as he intends, if it even passes in the first place. And remember, Dan, this is someone who identifies as pro-life. He wants it to be hard for someone to get what he calls a frivolous abortion. But he also feels like it's his duty to make sure doctors can save someone's life without risking a prison sentence. And because he wrote the bill in close consultation with state medical groups, he's reasonably confident that it will allow them to, in his words, get back to practicing good medicine. Alice Miranda Olstein, thank you so much for your reporting on this. Sure thing, Dan. I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. Offs. 
about 100 million Americans have medical debt. Research suggests they owe collectively at least $140 billion, and the impacts can be devastating. Being driven from their homes about, you know, having to think twice about bringing their children to the doctor, the, the amount of suffering out there, is, it's, it's hard to overstate. The pain and potential solutions to medical debt next time on Tradeoffs. Thanks for listening to Tradeoffs. If you've just discovered us, remember to subscribe to the feed so you never miss an episode. Subscribing is free and easy on your podcasting app of choice, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or NPR One. Special thanks to Alice Miranda Olstein for her reporting this week. The Tradeoffs team is producers Ryan Levy and Alex Olgan, editor Kate Cahan, executive director Jessica Silverman, audience engagement lead Shannon Crane, research reporter Soleil Shaw, production engineer Cedric Wilson, sound designer Andrew Perella, executive editor Dan Gorenstein, and senior producer Leslie Walker. The Tradeoffs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Additional thanks to Megan Messerly. Thanks also to all our listeners who helped to support our work, including Vicki Hartman, Berna Hebner, and Vanessa Frank. Our media partner is SideFX Public Media, based at WFYI. Tradeoffs is supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, West Health, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Scan Foundation, the Sozose Foundation, the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, California Healthcare Foundation, and the National Institute for Healthcare Management Foundation. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of trade-off staff, advisors, or funders. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.